Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. This episode is hosted by Christopher Drobot. Christopher is a passionate cheerleader for the potential of the Edmonton region. Although not directly an entrepreneur himself, his extensive experience in business operations and now mortgage lending help focus his excitement on the ideas that can see the city grow. He is involved in the push to bring a world-class aquarium to the city and is completing his MBA and, together with his wife, homeschools his two children. The parallels between entrepreneurialism and homeschooling have been many and he sees an overarching lesson in both. You have to create the world you wish to see. Now, why don't we get started with Christopher and his guest, Michael Zauri. Take it away, Christopher. Hello and welcome to the Rainforest Alberta podcast. I am your host, Christopher Drobot. And this episode, we are joined by Michael Zuri, a serial entrepreneur who has applied his infectious energy towards solving problems as diverse as nonprofit housing, image processing, publishing, fashion, and legal services. Mike describes his unifying thread as projects that are interesting, creative, and that hopefully advance the social good. Mike has received numerous accolades, such as a top 40 under 40 from Avenue Magazine, the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal, and an Edmonton Excellence Award. Having graduated from the U of A with a Bachelor of Science, the specialization in neuroscience, uh, Mike is truly connected to our community. Mike's current venture is called Painworth, which seeks to streamline and simplify injury law. Welcome, Mike. Hey, Chris. Pleasure to be with you today. Sorry, I, I, uh, you had given me some corrections to make to that bio right before we talked, and then I ended up just reading what I had written yeah, before. It's all good. It's all true. It's not. Uh, it's not a big deal. I think you'd want to say like it was specifically neuroscience that you studied in. Yeah, it's all. It's all minutia. It's all <laughs> under the bridge. So okay. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. It doesn't doesn't matter because I don't practice. So okay. Well, Who cares what I studied, right? Why don't you tell us your journey then, <laughs> and, and how neuroscience fits into that? Because there's a lot of stuff that I just like touched on but that's that's a lot so start at the start i i actually don't know if it does i i studied at the university of alberta and as an undergrad i was involved in a lot of uh, community projects mostly uh, charitable stuff so volunteering and while i was at the university of alberta volunteering one of the things that i came in to uh, volunteer with was the university of alberta hospital uh while i was there um I noticed that they had a program at the ALS clinic, and I thought that that would actually be quite interesting. Uh, So ALS is a a, a short acronym for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Uh, It's a degenerative motor neuronal disease. And I just thought, one, it was interesting because it was related to my studies, and two, um, it was a good cause. So I signed up at the ALS clinic and uh, and started volunteering there. That, that's also like that's that's Lou Gehrig's disease. That is commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. That's correct. Um, yeah. So I, I started that, and while I was there, I found that I was just mostly doing administrative work, and I didn't feel like I was actually helping anyone. Um, so I actually. Um, left the ALS clinic and started my own group called Action ALS, uh, which was a nonprofit uh, housed at the University of Alberta. It was formerly run as a student group. And um, yeah, we had some really good years. We grew 
from just myself to over 60 volunteers and raised a bunch of money and a bunch of awareness and um, ended up winning a bunch of awards. And uh, yeah, I spent some time even on a speaking circuit as a result. Uh, when you're a kid and you end up on a speaking circuit, um, especially when people feel like um, you made a big impact somewhere, you kind of come back and you feel uh, uh, pretty empowered, I guess. Um, like I remember, I remember thinking my entire life plan was going to be I'm definitely going to go to med school and I'm definitely going to be a doctor and then I'll specialize in surgery and maybe be a neurosurgeon one day. Um, and that was sort of un, unchanging. Um, I was absolutely fixated on that. And then when I came back from these experiences, I remember feeling like I had, I had more control over, over the world around me and I could, um, shape, I, I suppose, like the outcome of events around me. And I didn't just have to participate in a system that was already architected, but I could architect one. Um, and that, that, that was really powerful because running in a nonprofit, I was always dependent on the kindness of others in order to be successful. Someone had to make a donation, et cetera. Whereas uh, when you're self-empowered to go and maybe be entrepreneurial and do your own thing, you, you, can, you can sort of decide how funds are directed and um, how much funds to give away to whatever causes you see fit. Um, so now knowing that I could create things that could be impactful and be successful, I felt uh, empowered to go and start creating uh, businesses. And uh, one of the first things that I ever created was just a side project uh, with a friend of mine, and it was an online publication called Shave. Uh, it was a very, very first foray into any sort of uh, web technology. Yeah, I was just a user of the internet at the time. I definitely don't have any technical experience behind that. Um, and my friend and co-founder was a software engineer, but at the time they weren't teaching web technologies in his program. So we were both very, very green um, when it came to understanding web technologies and how to build even simple things like a website. Uh, but we sort of jumped head in, or sorry, head first into it and uh, used Google to learn how to do everything uh, from constructing our first HTML page to actually building our own custom CMS. And then, um, yeah, people I remember thought maybe we were a little crazy because we were a bunch of kids who thought we could create a magazine. Um, I guess it's more of a glorified website, but we, we called it a magazine. And yeah, I remember people sort of thinking that it was foolish and it wasn't going to work. And then not even like two or three months later, we got our first major band interview. And I just remember that was, um, that was a really, that was a really important moment. Uh, cause it, it almost felt like vindicating for everyone who said, yeah, you'll never, you'll never be able to do these things or these people won't be interested or no one's going to want to talk to your little digital publication. Um, and yeah, just within a few months and then within a year, uh, we ended up getting picked up by Microsoft. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so at the time, uh, this is like 2008, 2008, people still used Internet Explorer. And Internet Explorer um, had a homepage, which was msn.com. And msn.com uh, gave a daily digest of content, and they had different versions of MSN for different regions around the world. And uh, we were actually contacted by MSN Arabia uh, to provide English content for uh, all of MSN Arabia. So it was like a huge uh, moment for us. And 
Um, and then I really felt vindicated, obviously. Yeah, no uh, doubt. Trying to trying to do this little thing, and then I guess the rest, as they say, is history. Um, I went and I did that, and uh, after I was done with that, I got involved in a, in a men's clothing brand. I'm not a founder of that, but I was a co-owner, and then I did a little bit of angel investing, and I started an image recognition company, and then I spent the last couple of years um, as a product manager at a financial tech company before ultimately getting involved with uh, my current project, which is uh, Painworth. Right. Yeah. So it's been it's been a long, geez, what is it, uh, 12, 12 years now? <laughs> yeah, 12 or 13 years, yeah. Some zigzags though along the way, like. Tons, yeah. None of that has been uh, a straight trajectory at all. Like the, the whole thing was um, sort of unplanned and, uh, and ever-changing. Yeah, I, I don't think I could have seen one year into the future, let alone, you know, 12 or 13. It's um, it's taken me sort of all over the map across many different industries um, with many different uh, objectives. Yeah, so. I think that uh, kind of speaks to something that, that I pulled out of, you know, doing up a bio for you, but also just through the conversations we've had is that you're, you're extremely curiosity-based. Like everything that you do is just like, well, where, what is the, this all about? And then you kind of go down that rabbit hole. Would you would you say that's kind of accurate? And- I think that's I think that's pretty true. I mean, I am I am super curious. Uh, one of the things that I like to do on the weekends and stuff is just watch documentaries and and read things um, just because I want to know how things work. But a lot of my projects are actually just because I just don't like something. Um, I just don't like the way something is done. So um, it ends up bothering me a lot to the point where. Um, I just have to do something about it. I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah. yeah, like it's just, it's just this weird, like I have to, I have to fix this thing because it, it's just bothering me so much right now. Um, and that, that's actually exactly how I ended up in this current project. Yeah. Well, I'm going to kind of, you know, jump ahead and spoil the ending. Well, I don't know the, not the ending, but just the, um, we don't know how this ends yet. We don't. It's true. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, still we're making, we're, it, yeah. we're the architects of our own, our own future. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, something you had mentioned uh, to me previously though, is just how, um, you discovered the, the problem that you're currently working on. And like mm-hmm. you basically just read through all of the legal library, just well, that's that's probably a little too far ahead. I, I would say first up, I didn't discover the problem. The problem rammed me from behind. So I was hit by a drunk driver. Um, so it's a terrible, shitty, no good, awful, bad thing that I hope you never, <laughs> I hope you never have to go through and I hope no one else ever has to go through. Um, I do not recommend getting hit as a way to find your next startup. Um, or being involved in any sort of uh, tragic event like that. But yeah, that that is actually um, how this happened. So I got hit by a drunk driver, and I spent three months in recovery as a result. And it is a terrible, shitty thing, especially in Canadian winters. And I live alone on an acreage, and I have a 100-meter-long driveway. And when you're in recovery, you don't leave the house a lot. And um, even if you could, you probably can't really do things like shovel. So I ended up getting snowed in twice to the point where, um, like I ran out of provisions. I couldn't even like leave and people couldn't get provisions to me twice. Wow. So it's, yeah, no, it was a, it was a terrible thing. Um, so don't, don't, don't recommend that at all. Uh, but as a natural consequence of, of having to go through, um, not only the injuries, but 
the subsequent um, issues around it, like it, it alters your life, right? Yeah, I had to go through the legal services industry. I did what most people do, and I started looking for a lawyer to represent me, my case. And um, I just figured that that's what you do. I mean, that's sort of the world that I grew up in is, you know, you get hurt or something happens to you, you find legal counsel and legal counsel helps you through it. But, but yeah, no, <laughs> like going through the legal services industry was um, one of the most difficult and frustrating and aggravating um, things I've ever had to go through. It was torturous. Uh, and like, this is on top of, you know, dealing with the fact that I'm already injured and, you know, feeling broken and, uh, you know, a little depressed about the situation. So on top of it, you know, I have these lawyers who um, aren't, aren't being forthright with me. They have competing interests. Um, nobody's willing to tell me anything specific about my case unless I sign a contract with them, which of course locks me in and prevents me from shopping around. So it's the heck. Um, and then, and then on top of it, they were asking for 40% as a contingency fee, which I, I mean, they advertise 30%, no win, no fee, but after sales tax costs and disbursements, it ends up being about 40%. So I, I was just like really, really bothered and flummoxed by the whole situation, but I, I was really, really lucky because, um, a friend of mine is actually a former civil litigator. Um, he's a close friend and when I told him what I was going through and some of the frustrations I was having, he actually took me down to the law library. Oh, and yeah. he was the one who actually taught me how to litigate my own case. Um, and that's really what just kickstart this whole thing. So he, he took me down to the law library and he showed me that like, first up, a personal injury lawyers almost, almost entirely recreate a case from scratch every single time. Like it's a it's a very manual and intensive process. And it starts by reviewing a couple case law files to figure out who has had injuries similar to yours in the past uh, and has gone in front of a judge and received a judgment. And then once they figure those out, they will cherry pick two or three and uh, they will use that to guesstimate um, how much they should ask for for general pain and suffering. Um, and that just seemed crazy to me. I was like, guesstimate, like in 2019, when we have all this statistics and data and like uh, <laughs> when we have these powerful little computers in our pockets, like it just seemed absolutely arcane to me that somebody would still manually do all this stuff. And then, um, and then the actual like packaging of like uh, a case, like putting together a settlement proposal, it's, it's very, very simple once you understand what you're doing. There's a couple rules to follow, like there's a couple legal rules to follow. And there's a couple calculations you need to under, understand and do. And then there's a very simplistic template um, that you write and put together. And then you package those three elements and you have your entire case summary and your case proposal ready to go. And there's not much more to to, to getting everything uh, packaged for a settlement case proposal. So, so when I saw that, I was like, well, okay, the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm just going to build some tools to automate this. Um, so that's what I did. I, I, I built um, a tool to understand all of the case law that could read it, um, grabbed all the data, and then I um, had a system structure the data. So all of the certain elements like the actual award amount and who got hurt and where all that stuff into um, a database. And then once I had a really clean structured database, um, I was able to build statistical models on it. So instead of a human reading two or three cases, I could actually have a machine read a thousand cases. 
um, and tell you with pretty, pretty good certainty exactly what your pain and suffering would be worth under the eyes of the law. So I, th- I felt pretty good about that. Um, and once, once I had that, I was able to put together my entire um, settlement proposal on my own. Uh, but I still, still wasn't feeling super confident about whether or not I could um, take on my own case. It was like, well, you know, I've been conditioned to think I need a lawyer and blah, blah, blah. So what do I do? Um, so I went back to some of those initial law firms and I said, listen, the case is done. It's, it's ready to go. I have it all packaged up here. And, <laughs> and, and here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking maybe you can just be the face of my case and I'll give you 10%, you know, instead of that 40% nonsense. And they kind of looked at the the case summary that I put together, and they said, "Wow, like, like how did how did you get this together? And like, how did you do all this?" And I was like, "Well, I built a tool. Like, obviously, like, what do you, that's what people do, right? <laughs> like, 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 clearly, that's what everyone in their right mind would do. Um, not, yeah. So I I told him that, and uh, he came back to me, and he was like, "All right, well, two things. Uh, number one, it's forty percent. Take it or leave it. And number two, do you mind if we use your tools? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, 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 like are, are you, are you crazy? <laughs> like, like what is in it for me here? So, so you want to take the, you know, um, almost half of my entire recovery amount and you want to use the tools that I built to make your life like a million times easier. Like what, what is really in it for me here? So that kind of bothered me. And, um, and needless to say, I didn't, I didn't go with them. Um, so I decided that's it. I'm going to just do everything on my own. I started telling people what I was doing. And then shortly thereafter, access to justice groups across the country started reaching out and started actually explaining that what I had built was not just a tool for myself, uh, but it was actually a tool for 13 million Canadians every four years who are locked out of access to justice. Um, I was really surprised to hear that the number is that high, but um, it is. So... 13 million Canadians every four years either can't afford a lawyer, um, have bad case economics. Uh, well, what that means is like, for example, if a defendant has to be on a payment plan and pay 200 bucks a month, no lawyer wants to work that hard just to get 40% of 200 bucks a month. Yep. And uh, thirdly, if um, a plaintiff is rural or remote, like if they live in a geographically isolated region, they just might not get access to justice. So there's all kinds of reasons why people... Um, end up slipping through, you know, the, the cracks and um, find themselves isolated and stranded and just unable to to get the justice that they're owed. Um, and that was that was really shocking to me. So I called up my friend again and uh, another friend of mine who is now our chief technology officer. And I said, you know, how much extra work would it be to take this thing that I've built these these little tools and turn this into a full end to end solution? Um, and we looked at it and we said, you know, it's, it's kind of all there. Like, I mean, all the, all the groundwork stuff, it's, it's really here. It, it wouldn't be a lot of extra work to, to take this and turn it into a full end to end solution. So that's, that's actually what we've been doing. Uh, so it's been four months now since we incorporated the company and started this, this journey. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And you've had a couple of pretty significant milestones. Yeah, it's it's been crazy. So um, we're coming up on four months now, and we've already signed up over $3 million in total case claim value, uh, which actually makes us larger than a lot of um, law firms here in the city just by 
case claim value uh, in terms of representation. Um, most firms are, you know, one or two partners, um, just a few cases. So that's really, really cool. And uh, we've also signed up a lot of commercial beta interest, uh, one of which happens to be an insurance company right now. So I was I was really surprised to see that because we knew we knew eventually that they would want to talk to us. Well, <laughs> if we're successful, they would almost almost certainly have to deal with us. But uh, we we knew that they would probably want to talk to us eventually. We just didn't know that those conversations would happen this early on. Um, so it's been it's been really really interesting um, over the last couple months as as things have been ramping up and interest has been growing in in our tiny little project. A lot of people ask like. Um, you know, how are we getting so much traction? And uh, the truth of the matter is um, it's all just been word of mouth. Like we're not advertising. We don't do anything like that. Um, and you you won't even find much about us online. <laughs> you kind of have to know <laughs> that we exist yeah. in order to uh, in order to get a hold of us. I, I have a landing page on the internet and that's kind of it. Um, there's no real there's no real heavy social presence or, or anything like that. So. No, because you're just figuring it out still. We're really? just figuring it out. Um, yeah, like it's it's all about trying to figure out, you know, what's a product that um, is going to be simple enough that my grandmother can use, uh, but good enough that any lawyer could use to represent a client of theirs. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So you just kind of touched on access to justice. Um, I how How has... Was that at the forefront of what you were originally considering this to be? Uh, no, no, not at all. Um, I, I wish I could come and say like, you know, as soon as I got in that li library, I was ready to build an access to justice product. Um, but the truth of the matter was I was building a product for myself in isolation, just for my own case. Um, I wasn't thinking about other people. In fact, I didn't even think that I was building something new. At the time, I <laughs> it sounds weird to say now because I've, I've seen so much evidence to the contrary, but at the time, I genuinely believed that, um, that something like this probably existed already, you know, because I'm an outsider, right? Like I'm not, I'm not in the legal industry and I'm not in, in the insurance industry and, you know, these industries are quite mature. Uh, I remember seeing personal injury ads since I was a little kid, you know, like 30 years ago, so... <laughs> so I was like, well, you know, surely something, something like this probably already exists. And I've seen the scope of tools that do exist and they are nothing like what I've built. Um, so since I've built this thing, I I've seen the scope of tools and they're, they're basically a really, really, really cruddy search engine. That, that's kind of what they are. Um, so some law firms will pay for access to these tools, which are really just a cruddy search engine, um, to pull up case law, which they then manually will have to read and review and, and decide whether or not it works for them. Um, the two or three. The, the two or three, yeah. Like like once they kind of understand what they're looking for, uh, finding the two or three to yeah, to figure out the, the amounts that they want to ask for. But yeah, like initially I just thought I was replicating something that probably existed and I just figured that I wasn't knowledgeable enough in the industry to know what the tool was that already hypothetically existed. Um, so yeah, no, 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 uh, no access to justice angle at all. And I thought I was going to be the only user. Um, so I, I didn't really focus on polish. I focused on, you know, uh, function. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, exactly. That's, uh, that's awesome. Um, so out of that then, like what, what would you say has been like maybe the, 
the biggest lesson that you've taken away personally in in the process like not not about the legal system specifically or or even but just about you as an entrepreneur having done what you've done already how that's led you to being able to do this but then what what have you taken away out of out of this particular project well one of the things that i think i've taken away is that um I've probably done all my other projects wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I I think I, I think this one has a lot of traction and a lot of velocity, but I think it has all that because I've invited so many external parties in. Like like historically as an entrepreneur, I would I would work either in isolation or in semi-isolation. Like, you know, we would go out, we'd build our thing, and then we'd slowly start revealing it to the world uh, to get feedback. Uh, but with this thing, just from from day zero, we've been getting feedback from the outside world. We've been rolling it out and talking to beta users and other customers and things like that from day zero. You know, so so I think that's that's one of the things. The other thing um, is just inviting inviting everyone to be part of the journey with us. Uh, I've never done that before. Um, so you know, because you're part of my mailer, um, but I I do a monthly mail out list, which is basically uh, a glorified investor update except no one is an investor on the list yeah uh, but i do that because it keeps me honest and transparent uh it keeps me working hard because i, I want to say something good every month so i have to find uh you know new ways to get traction and um, i have to continually make progress i believe in something called a say do ratio so if i say it i have to do it um, otherwise the ratio is going to be off and so that's your, not your ratio thing. needs to be one to one. It's got to be at least one to one. Yeah. yeah. Or, or my say ratio has to be less than my do ratio. Right. Yeah. But it, like at minimum, it has to be a one to one. If it skews too far in the other direction, then, you know, I'm failing. <laughs> so, but even, in, even with that, that's, a, that's a really neat measure. Cause even with that, if you're skewing too far in the other direction, then you're probably not pushing yourself as far yeah. because you're not putting the big ideas out there for the world to hear. I, I, I think there's probably a lot of truth in that. Um, so I'm, I'm really careful nowadays about what I say, but I, I'm also very mindful of the fact that once I say it, I now have an audience that is keeping me accountable. Uh, and, and it's not really a direct accountability. It's more of an indirect thing. I feel the social pressure to not be turned into a liar. <laughs> yeah. I said the thing, so I don't want to, I don't want to not do the thing. Because uh, I, I, for fear of judgment or whatever, of having not done the thing that I said I would do. Yeah. So I do that every month now to keep me really accountable and to keep me pushing forward to to make something great um, and to help a lot of people. So that has been really powerful with this particular uh, project, and I've never I've never tried that uh, with past projects. So I think. I think that's a personal learning. And I've actually met a lot of other entrepreneurs um, who are either now on my mailing list or, um, or inspired to create their own who have told me that, um, that they, they now <laughs> want to start adopting a similar policy, uh, which is really cool because um, I, I tell everyone, I'm like, I, I don't own the idea. I think it's just a good idea and good practice. Uh, but it seems to be getting some traction too, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, people, it's almost like you've open sourced this this whole project. Like obviously you're yeah. the, the lead of it, but it, you've invited other people in to join you in the journey. I think that's partly true. I, I think a lot of people have interesting reasons for wanting to join the journey. Um, people want to either a be involved 
or B, uh, be direct or indirectly uh, involved in some capacity or C, um, maybe even just live vicariously. I think, I think a lot of people want to do things or they recognize the need for such a thing to exist, but not everyone has the capacity or the full-time endeavor to, to actually go for it. So I think um, by inviting them into our journey, they get to participate whatever level they feel comfortable as often or as uh, or not as they see fit. Yeah. Something that you do uh, as part of that mailer that I find is, I think, a, of a real benefit, not only to you, but to the community as a whole. Uh, and this is something that actually that we do at the Rainforest meetings as well, is where you say, these are the things that I'm working on. These are the things I need help with. And these are the things that I can help you with. And you actually kind of summarize that in your mailer. But um, I, I think it's important for people to actually hear somebody asking for help sometimes, not even, you know, as, as officially, but just saying, hey, these are the things that would be of a benefit. If you know this person, this person, this person, let me know. Yeah, um, I, I think that's very true. And that's why I, I ask for it. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts myself and I listen to a lot of companies and talking about their uh, their journey and how they did what they did. And um, one of the things that I think is a really strong takeaway is to always have a call to action. Um, it's not enough to imply that you need help in something. Um, most people do want to help. Most people um, are really interested to some level, but aren't really always sure of how they can contribute value. If people aren't offering the thing that they evidently see as being valuable that they can contribute, it's always good to have an ask for what you need uh, because you never know. I mean, you know, if everyone has 300 connections digitally, like either Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, you know, each person is a potential network of 300 indirect connections. Um, and you, you just, you, you can't, you, you can't predict the network effects of that. Um, I mean, a hundred people on a mailing list of people who are, you know, even, even just somewhat interested in what you're doing is, is the ability or potential for you to tap into an indirect network of 30,000 people, yeah. right? So a hundred times 300 is 30,000. So, so there's a lot of power and potential in that. So I've learned, you know, always have an ask, always crystallize what your needs are, um, and then leave it for, for people to opt in or not opt in. I don't ask any specific person to do any specific thing for me. I just put it out there, uh, what we actually need every month as we grow forward. And I, I'm not sure if it would be surprising or not surprising to you, but we actually get a pretty healthy response rate. Sometimes I don't hear from people for months. And then all of a sudden, you know, I send that one mailer out that has that one call to action and uh, they chirp up and they say, that's, that's the thing I'm going to get involved this month and I can help you with that one thing, which is really cool. Cause one, uh, you know, these people are, are getting involved and making themselves part of their journey and actually helping to create this thing uh, and put it out into the world. But two, it also shows me like these people are following the story every month you know, yeah. um, which is really, really powerful. Just knowing like you have a bunch of cheerleaders out there. Yeah. Like I always say, like, I didn't, I didn't build, you know, the traction that we're having the cheerleaders did. Like it's all, it's all you guys. Uh, you're, you really, <laughs> you really are the magic behind this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, I think a great outlook on things that you're, 
when, when people do get that, fe that feeling of actually being involved in something, then yeah, they're more willing to contribute. So that's, that's great. So like you and I met at Rainforest uh, Connector event. Yep. Um, how did that factor into your story? Well, in, in the beginning days for us, uh, I think it was really about getting out there in front of people and letting enough people in the community know, one, that we exist, um, and two, what we were working on. So not only do we exist, but we're working on this thing, and there are ways to um, involve yourself if you're so inclined. And I think that's been really powerful. A, a lot of entrepreneurs, as you know, suffer from failing to speak to the market and to speak to outside external uh, voices. And without that critical feedback, it's hard to build a truly great product. I don't know where we are as far as like building a truly great product, um, but we're somewhere on our way. And um, one of the things that we don't take for granted is the voice of the consumer and the voice of an external audience. So it was really, really important just from a value standpoint for us just to, to go out there as early as possible before we had much of anything and really just start hearing if people even resonated with our ideas. Like, do other people think what we're doing makes sense? Do other people hate it? If so, why? What were their criticisms? What were their concerns? Um, and it, we have a product that most people, or at least we have a vision that most people can relate to. I mean, most people have either been caught up in the legal services industry because something has happened to them, or they know someone who has been caught up in the legal services industry because something has happened to that person. And I think most people have an, an opinion of the legal services industry as a result. Um, so like almost everyone is up for grabs in terms of like a potential audience member to talk to. Um, so, so my intention in going out there beyond just um, getting to know the rest of the community and finding other inspiring stories and other good practices that we can adopt was to um, collect that feedback, um, be known, and um, get as many other people involved as possible if they were so inclined. And I would like to say that so far it's worked. Yeah. 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 That's I mean, I've made actually a lot of really great friends as, as a result. I, I would concur with that. Pointing at this guy right now. <laughs> yeah, so. um, awesome. Well, let's, um, we, we've covered a lot of ground. Let's, let's actually just kind of wrap it back up. And sure. Let's, let's distill this down to one thing. A message for that, that budding entrepreneur or that individual who's on the other side of the speakers right now who might be thinking about doing something. What are you going to tell them? Oh, well, first off, just, just jump right in. A lot of people that I talk to, honestly, um, so this is my seventh time out. Like, I mean, you know, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. Um, I, I've, I've had a few of these already. And a lot of the entrepreneurs, especially the new entrepreneurs that I talk to, yeah, they, they have a lot of anxiety about doing the thing because they feel like maybe they just don't know enough about the thing or the market. And the truth of the matter is most people don't when they're starting. Uh, you, your job as an entrepreneur is to become an expert within a year of starting the thing, but just jump in and do it. Uh, there's no better way to learn anything than by just jumping in and trying to figure it out daily on the fly. Um, after a year, you should be an expert. If you're not, then maybe it's not for you. But 
yeah, but give yourself, give yourself time and just jump in and do the thing. So that's the first thing is just jump in and do the thing. And the other thing is talk and share. A lot of people are really afraid to share their ideas, even though it's 2019. And even though there's like a million podcasts that say like, you know, be open about your idea and, and share and don't worry about, you know, uh, intellectual property theft and all that stuff. A lot of people still have a very natural fear um, that they're going to get ripped off. I'm going to share this idea and people are going to steal this idea and blah, blah, blah. And the fact of the matter is that like, largely speaking, that's not true. I mean, most people have their own stuff going on, period. Most people, first up, are not even entrepreneurial, just like just calling a cat a cat, right? Like, I mean, it is what it is. Most people just do not want to be entrepreneurial and are not going to do the thing or a thing for that matter. They're just not going to do it. And then of the few people who are super entrepreneurial, well, they're probably already very ambitious folks. And if they're very ambitious folks, they already have a lot on the go. So they're already busy with their own stuff. So they don't care about your stuff. And even if you have such a great idea that they care about, they still have to solve all the problems and the barriers and the things that you have to do um, that you've been working on forever. They have to get past all that. Plus they have to drop all the other stuff that they've been working on forever. Like the, the real chance of someone like, Stealing your idea, I would guesstimate, is less than 1%. Like, it's a fraction of a fraction. We could figure that out. I, I, I know you don't like guesstimating things. So oh. I'm sure we could figure that oh, out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we can, we, can, we can do a survey and we can do some statistical sampling. Um, yeah, no, I, I'd love to actually get some, some real metrics on that. But the upside to talking to people is easily, you know, tenfold or a hundredfold higher. Um, everybody's got a network. If you can convince people of your idea um, and bring them along for the ride, uh, people are willing to share that network with you and open it up and introduce you to people that you need to know or give you critical feedback that you need to hear really, really early on. So, you know, the first thing is jump right in. The second thing is like actually talk to people and share your idea before you do anything, right? Like yeah. commit to the project that you're going to work on and then really, really go and, and talk to the market. Don't build anything. Um, I talk to people all the time that just want to build, 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 build without ever talking to the market. That's a, that's a recipe for disaster. Um, I, I say to everyone all the time, including my own staff, like whatever we do, we're, whatever we're working on, like it's, it's wrong. Like, I mean, this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but it's wrong. Like, like none of us have the power to crystal ball this and predict exactly what the right thing is for the market. The best we can do is kind of create like a vision and a direction where we want to go and then just start talking to people and put something in front of them, like the, the smallest, most diminutive thing that we can possibly scrape together to try and sort of maybe kind of uh, scratch at the surface of what we think might be the problem. And then if that starts working, build and iterate on that. And if that's not working, figure out why. The best thing you can do is just take measurements to figure out why you're wrong to help navigate to what right is. But you're wrong up front. So it's just like, like when you're building a snowman. Yeah. You start with a very, very small. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. See, so you get keep it. Rolling it up. Yeah. See, I know you know. Um, but that's exactly it. Like, you know, start really, really small. Um, and yeah, talk to a lot of people to figure out, you know, why whatever you initially thought is probably wrong. Um, so you can help navigate to right. It's right. If you talk to enough people, you'll figure out what right is. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. It's awesome. Thanks so much for coming out today. I really appreciate you sharing your story and your, your advice that, uh, you know, 
it's been learned the hard way. I think so many folks, uh, we do learn things the hard way along the way, but hopefully through stories like this, you know, somebody maybe avoids a couple of the mistakes that maybe you made and listens to the advice Tons that you of provide. Mistakes. And uh, yeah, see see where that goes. So any any last thought quickly before we sign off? Uh, I, I don't think I have any last thoughts, but I, I do want to reiterate that one point, like just tons and tons and tons of mistakes have been made along the way. No journey is easy. Um, all journeys are hard. The default for most things is failure. Um, and it's just about that one. Yes. Right. That makes everything worthwhile. So yeah, just, um, yeah. <laughs> Great final words. Well, thanks so much, Mike. And, uh, yeah, to listeners out there, thank you for listening and enjoy your days. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social-barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was brought to you by a generous contribution from Levin Electronics and is hosted by volunteers from Rainforest Alberta. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.